Good morning, Restore. Uh, looks like we may, most of you missed the rain, but we'll see if you miss the rain getting out of here. Uh, my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here this morning. Uh, we are exploring, if you're just now joining us this morning, we are exploring a series on resurrection. So we, we just got out of Easter, uh, and, and basically the, the heart behind Easter is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, for most of us, uh, I, I think that this kind of sits as a truth that uh, maybe Jesus did this so that he could prove that he was God, right? Or, or um, it, you know, there's, there's kind of these uh, sayings that we have of like, the grave just couldn't keep him down as if Jesus and death were at war with one another and death was personified, right? And, and Jesus kind of overcame that. Now, I'm not saying that those analogies and the way that we think about those things are unhelpful or untrue, uh, but I do wonder sometimes if we miss some of the bigger, like deeper, profound truth of what it means to live as a resur- in, in the resurrection of Jesus as a Christian. Like the, the power behind resurrection, what is resurrection, all of that, uh, I think sometimes we miss. So, <laughs> the basic argument that I'm, I'm using over these next six weeks is uh, if you are, um, so, so it, oftentimes we like to say that Jesus died for our sins, right? Jesus paid the penalty for our sins or the sacrifice for our sins. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true at all. Please don't hear me say what I'm not saying. But that means that oftentimes we miss or, or devalue or sometimes don't <laughs> really ask what's the heart behind resurrection, because the whole sacrificial system in your Old Testament, uh, your Old Testament is that part of your Bible that was written before the time of Jesus. Uh, when you sinned in some kind of way, you would go and you would offer a sacrifice as payment for that sins in the temple. And that, that payment of your sins paid by the blood of that animal would reinstate you into the presence of God and sort of reintegrate you into uh, society, Right? But never in any of those scenarios in your Old Testament was the animal required to be raised from the dead. Once the animal was killed, the sacrifice had been done, uh, your sins were forgiven, transaction closed. Okay, tracking with me so far? So then when we get to the reality of resurrection, something else is happening Sins are forgiven, yes, in the death of Jesus, but then the question I want to ask is, why is resurrection? So, so that, that, that basic battle between Jesus and death, that epic battle between Jesus and death that plays out on the cross uh, is, is really more than anything else. This is how I would describe what happens at crucifixion. It is the God of the universe refusing to compromise with the ways of the world, throw shame at Jesus, throw violence at Jesus, throw humiliation at Jesus, and he does not respond to any of that. He doesn't respond violence with violence, shame with shame, humiliation humiliation with humiliation. The death of Jesus is the God of love, the God of peace, the God of creation, a God of the universe, refusing to compromise with the ways of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is an act of new creation. 
This is what we're arguing with over the next six weeks. The resurrection of Jesus is an act of new creation that brings about new life. And so the the real reality of being a Christian, a born-again Christian, a Christian is found in the reality of the resurrection. The crucifixion is significant, but the resurrection is what is defining for us as Christians. Okay, so uh, that, that, that God did not compromise with the ways of the world, that he did not compromise with violence, that he did not compromise with shame, is what happens at the crucifixion. That is the God of love saying, I will not compromise with the ways of the world. The resurrection of Jesus becomes the power of God to remake the world, to make all things new. And all of your testaments, all four of your New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, will use these analogies of the New Testament and new life, uh, 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 of of resurrection and new life or new creation. Uh, John particularly hits this strongly, but so does Luke, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, So we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 24. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to uh, to verse 13 is where we're going to start, or the words will be behind me on the screen. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so, so let me stop right here. Uh, this is after, this is basically after Easter. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He finds two guys who uh, know who he was or familiar with who he is, uh, who have seen him before and are walking on this road, and Jesus comes up alongside of them. But we read in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Literally in the Greek, you could almost say that Jesus was like holding their eyeballs. There was something about what Jesus was doing that was keeping them from seeing who he was just yet. Starting in 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Verse 19. What things, he asked. This is Jesus. He knows what what things have happened. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Okay, so uh, Luke will say something here uh, in verse 20. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over. 
the chief priest and our rulers. So that sounds a little bit like he's referring to, to some of the religious authority and figures, and then also uh, maybe Pilate or some of the political figures. But that word ruler in your New Testament, more often than not, refers to, your New Testament writers refer to that as like the principalities or, or the powers that control, in other words, demonic forces, demonic spiritual forces who control the world. And so Luke is telling us that, yes, both the powers of the world, this chief priest, but also the demonic rulers of this world uh, have come together. They sort of join forces to attempt to kill the Son of God. He says in verse 25, he said to them, How foolish are you? How slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Okay, so, so here, here's, here's what's happened. The, these two guys are walking on the road, arguing with each other about what's happened. They're doubting. They're insecure. They're uncertain. And Jesus comes in, uh, and they say, there's something happening here with this conversation that I'm having with you. There's something that's made me more curious. There's something that's made me, like, unlocked me just a little bit here. Would you stay with me? Uh, you could translate that, would you abide with me? They'd been arguing about Jesus, disputing uh, about him, but they understand that there's something powerful with the person that they're talking to, but they don't quite get it just yet. So, so resurrection, when we're asking, like, what is resurrection? We've talked about it being new creation. It is also grace. This is where we get our ethos of grace. Because resurrection shows us and tells us that you cannot fix your life. Nothing can set your life right but the power of God. And so these two individuals, they ask Jesus, would you abide with us? Would you hang with us for a little bit more? They're not quite sure what's happening just yet, but they've got a sense that he's offering something. And so there's this like clinging, hey, would you come talk? Would you come see? Would you come be with us just a little longer? So, so most of us with our, our theology, most of us with our spirituality, we're absolutely convinced that for Jesus to want to be with us, for him to be near us, we've got to have everything in order. We've got to offer the right level of morality. We've got to offer the right level of spirituality. We've got to right offer the right level of theological insight and understanding. But these two guys have no clue. Just a hint in their heart, there's something with you. Would you stay with us a little bit longer? When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? 
okay, so now they're opening up a little bit more. At first, they're a little bit curious. Now they're going to, was our heart burning within us? Was there something deep inside of us that felt uh, unrested or, or like grabbed in some kind of way? Some part of our heart that would not let go. Some part of our heart that felt uh, truly grabbed by what he was doing. Abide in me, they ask him. Then we read uh, this, their eyes were opened. We read uh, in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our our hearts uh, not burning within us? Well, he talked to us on the road. Uh, So when was the last time you heard uh, that phrase, their eyes were opened? Genesis. Genesis 3, 7, when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, when they succumb to the temptation of the service, when they rebel against God, Genesis tells us their eyes were opened. Their rebellious nature, like who they were uh, in relation to God, their eyes were opened. They began to see things that they were never meant to see. They began to interpret and approach the world in ways that they never were meant to uh, interpret and approach the world. Their eyes were opened to their own sinfulness. So we read now in Luke, their eyes were open. There's a reversal. What Luke is saying is this resurrected Jesus that is beginning to kindle in their hearts is beginning to reverse what happened in Genesis. They got up and they returned once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke bread. Okay, so the four things that have happened here in the power of the resurrection. One, their eyes have been opened, but this time not towards their own sinfulness, not towards their own distance from God, not towards their own rebellious nature. Their eyes have been opened to the love that God has shown them. Their eyes have been opened to their true relationship with God as his beloved children. Next, their hearts are rekindled. Something inside of them has said, who I am and the lies that I have believed about myself and the way that I have approached God may not be what he has for me, what he wants for me. His nearness to me has done something significant in me. And they begin to reinterpret the reality. (laughs) They begin to see Jesus for who he is. This is how our own process of resurrection begins. This is how our our own, like the power of God, uh, is displayed in our lives through resurrection. Because it opens our eyes, it rekindles our hearts, and it causes us to reinterpret our reality. We see the nearness of God not based on our own morality and our own efforts to grab him or get near to him, not the amount of Bible studies that we have, not the amount of uh, theology that we know, not the amount of morality that we stay disciplined to, to master, but it is in fact entirely the working of God, the resurrected Jesus, that is beginning to move these things in our hearts. 
Jesus does for them what neither one of them could merit on their own, right? Like this whole passage is grace. This is the grace of Jesus coming down on and upon them. They have no idea who he is. They're arguing with each other. There's all of these things uh, that they have no idea. Like, and they've I even at one point like been condescending towards Jesus. Do you not know? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't picked up on these things? And as Jesus begins to converse with them and he begins to break down their barriers and open their eyes and rekindle their hearts, they begin to see uh, who he really is. And so Jesus is asking them, almost in this, mer- in, in this moment, to reevaluate how they've interpreted the reality of his resurrection. He's beginning to invite them into this power that he's offering. And so they urge him. This is, this is where, so you're asking, like, what we, when we ask that question of, like, what do we do with God's grace? The only, th- like, how do we... Uh, get it? How do we receive it? How do we, uh, uh, like, how does it incorporate into our life? Here's the one thing that they do. They urge Jesus to stay. Would you abide with us? Would you eat with us? They cling to Jesus. This is what grace is. It's this molding inside of my heart. Jesus, would you come? I need you. Jesus, I don't quite have all of this figured out. I don't quite understand what resurrection is in my life, but Jesus, could you help me cling to you? He opens their eyes to this eternal reality. And as they wrestle with what that means, he's patient with them. He's gentle with them. He's not harsh or condemning towards them. Most likely, these two individuals knew who Jesus was. They probably spent years with him. At no point is he like, I spent years with you, working with you, working on you, teaching you. Why don't you get it yet? There's this gentle prodding in his heart, in their hearts, that rekindles something in them. Because So most of us are, are used to the way that we look at ourselves, the way that we understand ourselves in relation to who God is, based on years of sin, years of shame, years of broken relationships, and all of these things kind of piled on top of one another begin to affect our hearts. They begin to cloud the way that we see ourselves. They begin to cloud the way that we think Jesus sees us. And so what resurrection is, the power of resurrection, what it does is it reminds us, it shows us, It challenges us to see that the power to set our lives right, the power to fix, to rectify, to heal, to change, lies solely and completely in the power of the resurrected Jesus who is making us a new creation. So as I wrote one of these sermons, I was sitting at Barnes & Noble next to the self-help section, and I'm not knocking self-help. There's lots of kinds of great self-help books. But we are wired, uh, and my former profession has wired us to think that we can, with enough therapy, with enough medication, with enough self-discipline, with enough self-positive talk, that we can begin to fix and rectify and change and straighten ourselves out. 
Now, I'm not knocking any of those things. I have a therapist. Like, get a good counselor. Often the ways that God will help us work out our, our brokenness is through the gift of counsel. That is a gift that a spirit provides. But at the end of the day, there's a part of our lives that is solely and completely and utterly and helplessly dependent on the work and the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus to rectify and set us right. That no amount of self-help, no amount of self-discovery, no amount of anything else will fix or justify. Their eyes were opened. Their hearts were rekindled. They began to reinterpret the reality. They began to see themselves and they began to see Jesus differently. This is what resurrection is. This is the power of resurrection. This is why uh, on Easter when you say he is risen and someone responds with he is risen is deed, what we are saying is there's no obstacle in which God cannot cross. There's no barrier which he cannot break down to heal you, to restore you, and to redeem you through the power of his resurrection. This is why when we say that death uh, is the final enemy of God, so going back to when we started the sermon, when we talked about uh, death and Jesus sort of going at one another, what are we really saying there? All of our Easter songs are about death being overcome, Jesus overcoming death. What's happening there? Death is the great uh, defeater of humanity. Okay, I'm going to be morbid for just a second. I'm sorry. Like, forgive me, but it's cloudy outside, so this is justified this morning. We're just... But death is the great defeater of, of humanity, right? It is the thing, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter how healthy your relationships are, no matter how healthy your actual physical health is, death is the one thing that you cannot change about your future, right? Americans, we love the idea that our future's in our control. Pull myself up by my bootstraps, work hard enough, anything is possible, Death is the one thing, the one factor in all of this that you cannot change. It is the great defeater of humanity. And believe it or not, it's actually the great enemy of God. So when you read Genesis, right, so all of this is going back to this new creation analogy. When you read Genesis, who is the enemy of God? Some of us will say, it's Satan, it's the serpent. He shows up, he tempts Adam and Eve, sends the whole thing off. That's true that the serpent is there, and he is not a friend. He is an enemy. I'm not saying that. But he only gets about three or four verses of screen time in your Bible, right? Like, he's there for a little bit, and then he's gone. But what happens is, when he comes into the scene, what he introduces is death. And so if you read your Old Testament carefully, right after the, the garden, the story of the garden, you begin to read of all, well, so right after that, you begin to read that Cain kills his brother Abel. And all of a sudden, this great enemy of God's creation, death, has now begun to work its way into creation to change things. But then right after that, you begin to go down Adam's family line, and it's the kind of stuff that you, when you're reading your Bibles, you skip. So-and-so lived so many years, and then they died. So and so lived so many years and then they died. So many and so lived so many years and then they died. And they died and they died and they died. And on and on and on they go. And what that, that portion of your Bible is telling you is the real enemy here is death. All of these other people are living, but then they're dying. All these people are living long lives, but then they're dying. All these people are living and then they're dying. Death becomes the great oppressor of humanity. So when we say in your New Testaments now, when we say at Easter, 
Oh, death, where is your sting? Or we say things like, Jesus has conquered death. What we are saying is that Jesus has gone head-to-head with the greatest barrier to your flourishing. And the greatest point of your suffering. And has defeated it. The flourishing of humanity, the restoration of humanity, the forgiveness of humanity has started to take place again because he has defeated the one thing in your humanity that oppresses and controls and destroys. That is death. Okay, so, so when I was uh, a youth pastor, we used to have all of these kind of ridiculous debates with the kids. Like if a polar bear and an alligator got in a fight, who would win? Uh, and, you know, these 13-year-olds arguing about these kinds of things. If a cheetah and a tiger were racing, who would win, right? All of these, like, really abstract scenarios. Um, but one of my favorite ones came up, uh, and if you're not a basketball person, forgive me, but, like, there's the big basketball debate of who's the greatest basketball player of all time. Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? But the reason that debate will never actually get settled is because Michael Jordan and LeBron James will never be able to play each other. They're a generation apart. We can quote stats all day long. We had Scottie Pippen. Well, he had this. Well, they had that, right? This, this, that, that, all, the, all of these things all day long. We can quote those things, like try to figure out figuratively, but we'll never know who's the greatest player because they will never actually face off against one another. So when Jesus surrenders himself to death, going back to what I said earlier about crucifixion, it is the God of the universe refusing to compromise. When death is given to him, instead of, when violence is given to him, instead of responding with violence, when shame is thrown at him, instead of responding with shame, he responds by surrender. He allows death to, to do its worst, to, to control, to ultimately uh, destroy who he is. But because he's Jesus, resurrection takes place. And Jesus overcomes death. And so what we're beginning to say there is that there is no obstacle in your life. There's no barrier that God cannot break down to begin to heal, to begin to restore. This is the power of resurrection, the power of our addictions, the power of our sin, the power of our shame. Those things are also trivial compared to the power of death. Because there are times in your life where you'll feel that shame and there are other times where you'll overcome it. There are times where you will succumb to addiction. There are other times where you'll live in sobriety. Like even these things, uh, we can have moments of freedom, but the one thing that we cannot have moments of freedom over is death. But we do know that Jesus has overcome death, which means all of these other things that we struggle to feel freedom over, we know that he can also overcome, but the power is in his resurrection. The power to set your life right rests solely and completely in the power of God. Let me pray for us and we'll finish for today. Oh, Father, we, um, we need you. We admit we are powerless um, over death. We are powerless over so many things in our life. Our addictions and our shame Our, um, our fears. So, Father, would you, um, would you help us? Father, for the ways that we feel um, defeated, for the ways that we feel um, broken, unable to heal, would you begin to restore through the power of your resurrection? 
Jesus, as we begin to see and seek out new life, Father, would you help us to see that our power to set things right, to make things right, uh, rests solely and only in you. Father, we need you. We need your help. Would you love us? Would you care for us? We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.